The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For the Secret Church One study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC1. And this is Secret Church One, episode five. Okay, now you get to the, the, the monarchy time. What leads up to the monarchy? First and second Samuel. Primary information here. The time frame is from Samuel's birth to the end of David's kingship. So you got Samuel to David. In the middle, you're going to have Saul there. But you don't have Solomon here in First and Second Samuel. You've got Samuel's life to the end of David's kingship. The overall thing is, theme is kingship. Kingship. First Samuel depicts transition from theocracy to monarchy. By, by that I mean basically in the book of Judges, God was the king. He was leading his people. He was raising up judges. Then they get to the beginning of 1 Samuel and they say, we want a king of our own. We want a king like all the other nations. And they've got a horrible motives behind it. And they resist God. They say, we want a king so we can have power like other nations. So they raise up Saul and say, well, he's going to be our king. And so that's where we see the transition from God serving in what was basically a theocracy in the book of Judges to a monarchy begin to unfold through Saul. And then 2 Samuel gives us a picture mainly of David. So 1 Samuel is the transition. 2 Samuel is mainly focused on David. Three key characters, Samuel, who was the last judge that God had raised up, and he anoints the first two kings of Israel. Saul is the first one, and then the second one, as we mentioned, is David, who is Israel's second and most important king. Key verse, 1 Samuel 15, 22, to obey is better than sacrifice. What we're seeing unfold is that God's word is the sole basis for obedience and faith. Um, practical advice for studying this book. Look, always be looking for how the king of Israel was expected to be loyal to the covenant. This is huge because Saul is disobedient to the covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and it's his downfall. But it's David's loyalty to the covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that is the pinnacle of, of a, a new covenant. That, that it, not a new covenant, it's unfolding, but it comes about with David. And there's this incredible passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God establishes his covenant with David, the Davidic covenant that was huge for the rest of the Old Testament. Pay attention also to the transitions in 1 and 2 Samuel. We talked about the transition from theocracy to monarchy, from the typical worldly expectation of a king to a king that's loyal to the Lord that God anoints. David, not the one you would have expected to be the leader of the people of Israel. From no central place where God's name dwells to a new center in Jerusalem because David brings the ark to the center of Jerusalem. Even as a king, though, listen to this. Remember we talked about how we see major flaws. And this is not to harp on David, but even as a king after God's heart, David's life demonstrates the need for another king who will come in purity and absolute loyalty to the Lord. Don't miss it. David's kingly success is described in one chapter, primarily one chapter. David's kingly sin and its effects are described over 11 chapters. So let's not go to First and Second Samuel and just read the story of David and Goliath and talk about how we need to be like David and fight all the giants in our lives. If we do that, we've missed out on the picture that's being painted in First and Second Samuel. The picture is painted of a guy who was after God's own heart, who had some major weaknesses that, that came about, and we see the major effects of sin that point us to we still need a perfect king. That's what First and Samuel 7 has given us a picture of. First and Second Kings picks up after that and contains over 400 years of Israelite history. Now, chronologically, we're still moving forward here. And this chronology is grouped into four segments. Each ends with a major catastrophe. 
Four major catastrophes. You've got the division of the 12 tribes. You've got the slaughter, Jehu's slaughter of all but one of the crown prince heirs of the throne of David. You've got then the two major events that we talked about. And we were walking through the nutshell, history in a nutshell. You've got the fall of Israel to who? Assyria. And the fall of Judah to Babylon. Okay, so that comes about. Two major themes that are seen in, in those catastrophes. Number one, the rejection of Israel as God's people. Israel is rejecting God. They're saying, we don't want to follow you. They're disobeying him. There's, it is a gradual, that deterioration we saw in Judges is even heightened. As the kingdom is divided, and you've got Israel and Judah, rejection of Israel, God's people, and the rise of prophets who proclaim God's word. The king was to be the agent of God's covenant. That's what we see in, in the picture of David. However, the kings dropped the ball big time. And so what happens is prophets begin to rise up. All the prophets that we're going to look at in just a second are rising up, most of them rising up during this time to speak because the kings are disobeying God. Overall structure, you've got the united kingdom, Saul, David, Solomon, then the divided kingdom, and then the captive kingdom. Once they are taken apart, Israel uh, and Judah both destroyed and they're taken captive into exile. That's the picture of First and Second Kings. It covers 39 kings. You got the first three, Saul, David, Solomon, and then you got 36 after that. And you just see story after story of kings. Look at this. Covenant loyalty, the measure of success, success or downfall of king. Now, there were 19 northern kings. How many of them do you think followed the Lord out of 19? Northern kingdom of Israel, out of the 19 kings, once the kingdom divided, the number that followed the Lord was zero. It was not said that one king followed the Lord. And as a result, you're going to see guys like Isaiah rise up, a prophet, to speak for God in a time where everything in the country is going against God. That gives you a whole new glimpse of what Isaiah was doing. Out of the southern kings, 20 of them, eight of them followed the Lord. I listed their names there just so as you study the, the book of First and Second Kings, you can see the... The, those guys highlighted as following the Lord. As kings are disloyal, God raises up prophets like Elijah and Elisha to accomplish his purpose. We'll talk about the prophets in just a second. Now remember, First and Second Chronicles is our, is our spotlight book. First and Second Chronicles was the final book that was written in the Hebrew Bible. It's the last one. That's, uh, the English arrangement of books in the Bible is different than the Hebrew arrangement of books in the Bible. Second, first Second Chronicles is at the end in the Hebrew Bible, possibly written by Ezra. And now, now I want you to follow along here, and this is how we're going to see the spotlight. It was written from a more spiritual kingdom perspective, and by that I mean that it focuses exclusively on the positive facets of David and Solomon. It focuses on the good things that were going on. And it demonstrates the blessing of God on the obedient kings in Judah. So we don't see the negative facets of David and Solomon. You don't see all the disobedience. You see the obedient kings. It gives a more idealized representation of the kingdom of God. Now remember, don't, when you come to First and Second Chronicles, we're not looking at new history. We're getting a spotlight of what's happened before that. And it's an idealized picture. And the central focus as you read that is going to be on the temple and Israel's worship. Now, in order to... To understand that, I've, with that, with that said, the question is why? 
Why would first and second, the author of first and second Chronicles, whether it's Ezra or somebody else, why would he want to give that kind of picture, that kind of perspective of the kingdoms? David and Solomon and the kings who were obedient. Why was he doing that? And the answer is the practical advice for study. We've got to understand the perspective of the author. He is trying to restore the kingdom. Now, here's where we fast forward in history. This is these two books. Now, you've got to follow me here. These two books are giving us a picture of the history of the United Monarchy and the Divided Monarchy. But it was written after the exile when they had come back to Jerusalem. So what had happened was, guys like Ezra, whoever wrote this, had been taken out of Israel. The, the people had been taken out of Israel, had come back now, and they're trying to restore what was completely obliterated. And so if you're going to write a book, a history of God among the kings to encourage people to rebuild the temple, to encourage people to follow God, then are you going to give them the picture of all the the parts where they messed up? No, you're going to give them a picture of the glory of those who followed God and how the temple was so huge. So that's why we get this emphasis because it would be like me saying to us, Suppose we had been in exile for the last 70 years. We come back together. What I want to do is I want to, I want to preach what would mo most motivate us to gather together and restore what was there before, the temple, the city of Jerusalem. So that's why he gives it from that perspective. And so we see the three parts. We got genealogy at the beginning, First Chronicles 1 through 9. Don't get too bogged down there, but you can read through it pretty quick. Uh, you get united and then divided monarchy and Judah in, uh, in particular. See the emphasis on God's goodness when the presence of God is renewed in Israel. There's just great celebrations when the ark is brought back, when it's brought in the temple, when the temple is consecrated. So in the middle of all that, you've got 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicle. You've got the building of the temple, and then you've got Ezra now saying we need to rebuild the temple. And so he gives another picture of the temple in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Three more books left in the history. Three more books that continue on. Ezra, Nehemiah. We've got them grouped together because they were one book in the Hebrew Bible. They, told, they tell one main story. Um, basically, the story is three facets. The return of the remnant to Jerusalem. So all those who were exiled. If you can imagine, just get the, 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 the picture of us being destroyed. We're the nation of Israel. We're destroyed. And we're all separated from our family, our friends. We're scattered, and we're put in a foreign land. They take us to, you know, California. And now we're, we're just, we're all in California. And you're looking around, and everything's different. And people are talking different, and the people around you are not the same people that were around you. And, and you're slaves in California. You don't want to be a slave in California, but that's what you are at this point. And so then finally you come back together and you say, we need to regroup. And so that's what's going on in Ezra and Nehemiah. The remnant returns to Alabama. Okay, the return of the remnant to Jerusalem. I'm not sure how that's going to translate on the video. Uh, <laughs> I guess geographical illustrations would not be the best. Okay, um, the rebuilding of the temple. The rebuilding of the temple. <laughs> God brought his people to Alabama? Yeah. God did not bring his people to Alabama. Uh, rebuilding of the temple. Um, and then the rebuilding of the city walls. And so they rebuild the temple, the central place of worship, and rebuild the walls around the city. Ezra rebuilding the temple, the book of Nehemiah rebuilding the city walls. 
Author is likely Ezra or Nehemiah. Ezra means helper. Nehemiah, God is comfort. These were guys who really did come on the scene to a people that were hurting and help and bring comfort. God sovereignly works to preserve his people for his glory. Don't miss that. This is where that whole rock of God's sovereignty is coming back in. He's not going to let his people. He's not going to let his people live without hope. He's not going to leave his people alone. He's brought them back just like he had promised through the prophets. Practical advice, the overall structure, what you've got is a balance. It goes back and forth between national and spiritual. You've got national restoration, then you've got spiritual restoration. And in the book of Ezra, first part of Nehemiah is physical repair of the walls. And then the second part of Nehemiah is basically spiritual revival. God just renews his people. The physical and spiritual reform going together as they rebuild the temple and the walls, they repent of sin. And Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 9 and 10 both show a picture of the God's people renewing the covenant. The whole covenant, that's one of those themes that we see over and over and over again throughout the Bible. They renew that. Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10 in a great service of basically praise and confession where they renew the covenant. Uh, Nehemiah 8 through 10, the high point of the story with a covenant renewal ceremony. Purity and obedience to the word at the heart of the covenant. Now here we come to our spotlight book. The spotlight book is Esther. Esther gives us a picture of something that most likely happened during the time of Ezra. So Esther goes back and gives us a picture. Now we've seen how each of these spotlight books are used to encourage the people of God amidst some of the struggles they'd experienced during that time. And Esther does that. Esther, some of you may have seen the movie recently uh, about Esther, but events take place before time, during the time of Ezra. God's providence is evident, though his name is never mentioned. You never see the name of God in the book of Esther. It's interesting. Not one time. And that's why some people have debated whether or not it should be involved in the canon. But what's interesting is you see God working throughout it. His name is not mentioned. There's four main characters. There's the Persian king, Xerxes. There's Haman, then Mordecai, and then Esther. Those are the four main characters. And the people of Israel are basically, they're under threat of extinction under the king, the Persian king. And the people of Israel are saved by God's providence from extinction. Saved by God's providence from extinction. Though God's name is not mentioned, here's some practical advice. Look. This is, this is a fun activity to do as you read through Ezra, okay? Fun in Ezra. As you read through it, look for, for evidence of God's providence. Providence basically means, like his sovereignty, his control, how he provides. Look for evidence of it over and over and over again. Esther is chosen to, to, be, to be brought into the king's palace. Mordecai discovering the plot to kill the king. Just like a coincidence it almost seems. Casting lots to destroy the Jews. The king's welcome to Esther after ignoring her for a month and the king's deep concern for Esther's welfare. All those things don't make sense apart from the providence of God for his people. They're just, it's one of those things and we've all seen it in our lives where you look back and you see all these things that came together that really shouldn't have come together, but they did to bring you to where you are now. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Esther. And all you can do is say, God, we praise you for your leadership in that. So compare Esther and Proverbs. There's some really interesting parallels through there. We won't dive into that. Recognize the influence of the godly on the lost. That's one of the main questions Ezra, uh, Esther begs us to ask. What does this mean for the way we use our influence on those who are lost? This is a very, very interesting picture. So that's, that's what you got. That's the history. That's all the history of God's people. That means everything else we see in the rest of the books of the Old Testament give us some more understanding of what we've already seen. But 
at this point, Genesis to Esther, we're done with chronology. Now, there will be times and dates and all that sort of stuff mentioned, but it's all coming back into there. We had those spotlight books. That's really what the writings and the prophets are. They help spotlight some different facets of different points of this history. Well, let's dive right in. We're, we're getting close to our time uh, in this second, the second half of the first session. The writings of God's people. The writings of God's people, also known as poetic and wisdom literature. Because uh, it's mostly, most of these, these five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, most of them are written in Hebrew poetry. Um, they stand in the final position of the Hebrew Bible um, after the second, first and second chronicles. They include man's responses to the words and deeds of God found throughout the law and the prophets. The way I like to look at these books is uh, we've seen God's activity among his people. And these books kind of give us, it's writing from our own level. It's giving us a picture of our response to God in the middle of it all. The Psalms, for example. As you see God in the history of God's people, how do we respond? Job, the perspective of a man who's going through deep suffering in the middle of this overarching picture. So, uh, man's response is divine speech is rare. What you'll notice in these books is, is the writers are speaking for man to God rather than the reverse. The prophets, we're going to see the exact opposite. God speaking to man through his prophets. Here, it's men speaking to God. It's our response to God. So divine speech is rare. The primary thing, theme is probably summed up in Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, let's dive through these five books. We're going to fly through this. Primary information, Job. A lot of questions. We don't know exactly who wrote Job, and we don't know exactly when it was written. Most likely written during the time of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, somewhere in there. But we don't know exactly. But that's most likely where it is chronologically. Job was a real man and a real history. Again, this is not a fictional fable story. This really happened to this guy. The question that Job asks across the board is how and why do the righteous suffer? Job, the most righteous out of all men, how does he suffer and why does he suffer? Those are the questions that you see going back and forth throughout this, this book. God is completely sovereign in his dealings with his people. Now, here's where that rock comes in and will never allow anything to come to them which is not for their good and his glory. Don't miss that. God's good or God's glory and man's good are going to be working together here in a very difficult tension in Job's life. Practical Advice is an oriental book. And by that I mean it's filled with thoughts and expressions from eastern peoples. This is where we need to remember that these are not western minds, western writers that are writing this. They think differently than us. And so we just need to keep that in mind even as we see Job interacting with his so-called friends. It's a poetic book, so it's a lot like Hebrew poetry, and it's ultimately a difficult book. Suffering in a world where God rules. That's not an easy subject to address. It wasn't easy in the patriarchal times, and it's not easy today. Suffering in a, in a world where God rules. How do, you, how do you bring those together? What you've got is the beginning sets up the story, the prologue, and then you've got poetry divided into three dialogues. In the middle of the book, Job chapter 28, the question, this is kind of the central question, and it ties it back to the whole purpose of these writings. Where does wisdom come from? And we see the relationship between wisdom that comes from God and suffering. Just think about it, just practically. Are we wisest because of our successes or because of our sufferings? Where does our wisdom grow the most? Where does it deepen? Obviously, not in our successes, but in our pain is when wisdom 
becomes a reality and it begins to take root. That's what we're seeing unfold in the book of Job. Don't look for an easy answer to these questions. Don't look for an easy answer to why and how the righteous suffer. There's not one. If God is good, why is there so much evil in the world? There's not an easy answer to that. If there was any book where God had the opportunity to give that answer, here it was. Job looking up, why is this happening? Easy for God to say, well, here's why. But he doesn't do that. What does God do? He asked Job 40-something questions to reveal his character. It says, you can trust in me. That's not an easy answer, but it's you can trust in me. And that's what it highlights here. Don't look for an easy answer. Practically, some implications. God alone is sovereign. Don't forget Job 1 and 2. Satan is not sovereign. Satan's not free to do whatever he wants to do in the world. Satan can only do that which God allows by his providence him to do. That's good news. Satan is not sovereign. God alone is sovereign. Second, suffering is a privilege God extends to his children. Now that, that sentence, we could, we could camp out on the rest of the night and walk away with a headache still. <laughs> suffering is a privilege God extends to his children. That's what we're seeing unfold in the book of Job, though. God is glorified when suffering saints worship him. Ladies and gentlemen, you look at these, uh, these things that are hanging above, these people that represent... And you look in Revelation where it sees those who have been martyred at the throne of God singing his praises forever and ever and ever. God is honored when suffering saints worship him. God's honored in Sudan when a million believers die in the middle of suffering and Christianity is quadrupled because they worship him in the middle of their suffering. That's heavy. It's the message of Joe. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.